All right, and welcome back, beloved. Today we're moving on with our Zechariah series. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. And the title of our message today is Comfort for Zion. We are going to learn about God's plan for Israel and Jerusalem today. Very exciting. If you have not watched our other Zechariah videos, I highly recommend you go to foolishministries.com and click on Bible Studies. There you'll be able to read the verse-by-verse commentary as well as watch the videos. Today we're finishing up the first vision of Zechariah. Zechariah receives eight visions in a single night, and we're really laying the groundwork so we can move quicker later on through the other visions. So this is part two of the first vision. So you definitely want to check out these videos first, okay? And what I've done here is I've done all the work for you. This is Zechariah 1, verses 11 to 17. I highly recommend you just pause the screen and read these over so you're familiar with them. And just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate your understanding of what these verses mean, and of course, to apply them to your heart, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, we all labor in vain. So we are all at the total mercy of the Holy Spirit to give us any sort of spiritual understanding here. And these are really some amazing verses. So I'm going to jump right in. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 11, we explained about half of it last week. Just to review, the angels that go and, and, you know, scout the earth out, they're like cavalry scouts in the military, they're reporting back to the angel of the Lord, the man riding on the red horse that's amongst the myrtle trees of Israel, right? And so these angels answer the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. They were just sent to patrol the earth. Now they come back and they say, we've patrolled the earth. We checked it all out. And behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Now, normally that would sound like a good report, but what you're going to hear today is the Lord's actually not thrilled with that report, and neither are the children of Israel. And I'll, I'll explain why in just a moment. Just a quick review. Remember, the man on the red horse that we spoke about last week, he stands among the myrtle trees. It represents the Messiah coming back to wage war on behalf of Israel. The angel of the Lord is the man on the red horse, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And the red sorrel and white horses in Zechariah verses 1, excuse me, uh, chapter 1 verses 7 to 11, those other horses behind the Messiah, behind the man on the red horse, those are those other reporting angels. And they've now returned to the angel of the Lord. They've checked out the earth and they tell him all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Normally, we would consider this to be good, but what we're going to learn in this text today is that the Lord is very angry with the nations who are at ease. There's a smug arrogance of the oppressors of Israel, Babylon and Assyria and Edom and the surrounding nations, and they're enjoying peace and quiet, but it's a false peace. It's a false sense of security. And so normally, I mean, everything's at peace and quiet. That would sound good. However, we're going to see today why that's not necessarily good for Israel or the plan of God. Okay, the prophet Jeremiah said the Lord has a controversy with the nations. And here it's based on how the nations have treated Israel. The prophet Joel says when the Lord comes back, he will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the valley where Yahweh judges the nations, possibly the same valley the man on the red horse amidst the myrtle trees is, the Kidron Valley, and he will enter into judgment with there on behalf of his people and his inheritance, Israel. 
whom they've scattered among the nations and divided up his land. God is going to judge the nations who are at ease one day and who are arrogantly oppressing the children of Israel, which is the inheritance of God, and who have divided up the land of God, just like Israel and Hamas are warring right now over land, God is going to judge these nations. God has a controversy with these nations. Right now, at this time, around 520 BC, all these nations were peaceful and quiet, but that wasn't necessarily good news. Let me explain why. The prophet Haggai, remember in our Haggai series, he revealed, and Haggai and Zechariah prophesied about the same time. This prophecy would have been just a few months before Zechariah's visions are unfolding. And Haggai the prophet, he said, there's a time coming where God's going to shake all the nations, and then they will come with their wealth. All the wealth of all the nations is going to come to Israel. We're not going to be a poor, beleaguered, oppressed nation anymore. All the wealth is going to come. God's going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the nations and destroy all their militaries. He's going to destroy them. He's going to give that wealth and devote it to Israel. He's going to rebuild the temple and fill it with glory. All these amazing things are coming. So, The fact that the Gentile nations are enjoying peace and prosperity while Israel is in poverty reveals that the eschatological, the end times plan of God for Israel, has not yet begun to unfold. It's actually bad news in a way. And so the angels report to the angel of the Lord and they say, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. And look at what the angel of the Lord says. He begins to intercede on behalf of Israel. He says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, which with which you have been indignant, with which you have been furious these 70 years? And so when we talk about the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's amazing. We clearly see it in the New Testament. But here we see it in the Old Testament, because the angel of the Lord, we revealed this last week, he is God. He is the Lord. He is the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And here, he begins to intercede on behalf of Israel. He says, how long until you have compassion on them? And because we know the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be surprised that he's interceding on behalf of his people. Hebrews chapter 7 in the New Testament says Jesus can save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. A ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is he is in heaven right now interceding on our half before the Father. But Jesus was the Son of God from all eternity. So here, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, the angel of the Lord is interceding on behalf of Israel. Jesus said in John chapter 17, he prayed for the church. He was a human being. You know, he was born at this time. He said, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Jesus intercedes. He is the advocate only for the children of God only those who were given to him. It is an incredible reality that the angel of the Lord, the man on the red horse, Jesus Christ intercedes for his people. And so we should not be surprised here to see the angel of the Lord interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel. And he's asking God to show compassion to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. And this is basically his question. He says, how long? 
how long? I mean, David, the psalmist said that. He said, oh, Lord, how, how long? And so he says, how long until the Lord shows compassion to Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Lord's word? Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's not as if God the Father doesn't want to show compassion and Jesus sort of nudges him into it. That's not how it works, okay? Jesus is praying to the Father in this case for the fulfillment of prophecies made in the book of Jeremiah. You see, it was revealed in Jeremiah and all throughout the prophets. Isaiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it that the Lord would judge them for 70 years and be indignant with them, but then bring them back. Let me read you this prophecy that Jeremiah wrote before the Babylonian captivity. Now you get to see it fulfilled in the book of Zechariah. It's incredible. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 to 14. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, Israel. I'll fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. This has already happened in Zechariah's time now. This has been fulfilled. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. This is an incredibly clear prophecy. The Lord's saying, I'm going to be angry with you for 70 years. You're going to spend these 70 years in Babylon. They did as captives, but I am going to bring you back. And as you'll see later with prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. They've been brought back, but as a nation, they have not been fully restored. We still await that at the second coming of Christ. And so the angel of the Lord is saying, Lord, how long until you fulfill your promises that you've made to the nation of Israel? We plead with God based on his word. We live based on every word the Lord has spoken. We shouldn't be praying for promises that God has not promised us. And within God's word, we have all his promises to us. And so the angel of the Lord intercedes on behalf of Israel according to the will and word of God that has been revealed in Scripture. Scripture is so powerful. We need to understand that. So let's go on to the next verse. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 13. So then the Lord answered the angel. So the Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord, the Son, intercedes to the Lord of hosts, the Father, and the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me. That's that interpreting angel. So the angel of the Lord, the Son, don't get confused here, intercedes to the Father. The Father gives it to the interpreting angel with the idea of giving it to Zechariah and the nation of Israel. It's a beautiful communication piece, right? And he answers the angel with gracious words, comforting words. So important. Gracious words and comforting words. And the Lord, essentially, this is like a bookend for the entire book of Zechariah. The Lord has grace for Israel. These gracious words are revealed in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. We're going to discuss them today, and I just want to give you an outline. Number one, the Lord has a zealous love for Israel a jealous love, an envious love in a sense. And we'll, we'll explain that in a moment. The Lord is very angry with the nations who are at ease. He's not thrilled about their peace and quiet. You know, we hear a lot about 
peace and we want world peace, but you need to understand there is a time for war. And the Lord is very angry with these nations who are at ease. In verse 16, we see the Lord is returning to Jerusalem. The temple will be rebuilt on Mount Zion, and the prosperity of Israel will literally overflow and gush out on that day, very similar to what Haggai the prophet said. And so, really, these, this verse, and many commentators have said this, many pastors have said this, the Lord answered the angel with gracious words, comforting words. Essentially, this is like the theme of the entire book of Zechariah, that God remembers Israel, and he has grace for them. Israel obviously is still under chastisement, punishment for their rebellion. However, God has also promised them. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. The Lord your God's a compassionate God. He will not fail you. He will not destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to you. And this is so beautiful. The crucifixion of Christ, deicide, the slaying of God, did not alter God's love for Israel. They killed God, and God will not forsake Israel. That's beautiful. And not just the Jewish nation, although they are the most culpable for that murder, the entire human race, we are all guilty of killing God. And it is only the grace of God that can bring us back to life. But I love that. The crucifixion of Christ, it did not alter God's love for Israel. In Luke chapter 19, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, literally, he's about to be crucified in a few days, and he sees the city and he weeps over it. And he, he does prophesy their coming destruction. That does happen. God did scatter the nation of Israel. He will regather them back up. He's been doing that for decades now. But Jesus said there's a time where the nation will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when we're talking about Jewish people, the nation of Israel, those gathered people and the scattered Jewish people around the world, scripture is clear. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies in the sense that they reject Christ, they reject the Messiah, the vast majority of Jews are, are not walking with the Lord right now, and therefore they are enemies of the gospel. They're enemies of the righteousness of God, right? They're enemies of the good news in that sense. But from the standpoint of God's choice, very important, we're going to talk about this later, God's eternal election, the nation is beloved, beloved, for the sake of the fathers, because of the promise made to Abraham. God has gracious and comforting words for the remnant in Israel and the nation as a whole. And the book of Zechariah reveals that, and very important to understand. Paul talks about all this in Romans chapter 11, and he says, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable in relation to this. God has an eternal promise for the nation of Israel, for the land of Jerusalem, and for Mount Zion that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom, or will reach most of its fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. He will not forget the covenant. Even killing God does not remove God's plan and his love for Israel. We're not talking about every Jewish person. They are not all Israel who are called Israel, right? We're talking about his elect, his chosen, the Jews that will come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether now or at the end of the tribulation. So I know that's a mouthful. Let's move on. Bottom line, God has gracious words and comforting words for Israel. So the angel who was speaking with me, the interpreting angel says, proclaim, Zechariah, you're a prophet. Get ready to do your job. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is not the interpreting angel speaking. It's not even the angel of the Lord speaking. It's certainly not Zechariah's own imagination. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous 
for Jerusalem and Zion. This is a statement we all need to study and be a little bit careful with. In fact, I think we should be very careful with this statement. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Okay, that word jealous there, the Arabic root of that has to do with the color red or even black. Okay, it's talking about a fervent, zealous, jealous love. It could even, that Hebrew word could even mean envy. And God, several times in Scripture, again and again and again, when we're talking about what Israel did, which is apostatizing, worshiping false gods and falling into idolatry from the one true God, God says, do not worship these other gods or serve them in Exodus, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, okay? When we think of jealousy or even envy, we typically associate it with sinful behavior. We need to understand, God is not like us. God's love is holy. God's jealousy is holy. God's wrath is holy. God is nothing like us. God is nothing like the angels. He's even separate from his angels. And I highly doubt we could understand the emotions of angels. So we shouldn't even lie to ourselves or pretend as if we can understand the emotion of a God who for our benefit describes himself as jealous. However, we're going to do the best we can. Here's a good example. It's been used by many commentators. For example, if a wife or a husband commits adultery, a loving husband should be jealous. It's not sinful over losing something that belonged to him. That's only That was only meant for him, that relationship. He can't remain indifferent if he cares for his spouse. If you love your wife or you love your husband and they cheat on you, if you don't care at all, that just means you don't love, like that you just don't love your spouse. And so jealousy here is because Israel, in this case, is the unfaithful spouse. And God has created Israel for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43, Israel, several times throughout scripture, is described as a bride or wife of God, I should say. And, and the Lord says, everyone called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, I have made. God made the nation of Israel and the individual Israelites who were supposed to walk with him, they were made to be, Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, a holy people to the Lord. He chose them to be a people for his own possession. God is the creator of all and he owns everything. But Israel was to be a special possession of the Lord out of all the people who were on the face of the earth. Exodus chapter 19 says they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a separate nation. Previously, they experienced God's jealousy and wrath. You have to understand there's two ways that God manifests his jealousy. And the first is in wrath. Not the first in importance, just the first way Israel experienced this. Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 25, the Lord says, I will set my jealousy against you that they may deal with you in wrath. It's talking about the nation of Babylon. They'll remove your nose and your ears. Your survivors will fall by the sword. It's a serious judgment. They'll take your sons and your daughters and your survivors will be consumed by the fire. So the jealous love of God can cause him to punish wayward Israel, did cause him to punish wayward Israel. Israel as the unfaithful spouse. But now when the Lord says, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, it's not the negative implication that you just saw of wrath for their sin or for their unfaithfulness. Now there's the positive aspect of this jealousy. He says, I'm exceedingly jealous for them. I'm extremely jealous for Jerusalem 
and Zion. And so now this love and special affection for Israel is arousing the Lord to act on their behalf graciously. And I know this is hard for us to understand, right? Because he punishes and then he, you know, he, he saves and he wounds and then he heals. Hosea chapter six, speaking of the nation of Israel says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. So I think there's two sides to this jealousy. The first is God is the creator of all, and we all exist to glorify God, and we should. However, and that jealousy of God causes our sin and our unfaithfulness, he punishes it. And in this case, with the nation of Israel, he used Babylon, and prior to that, Assyria and Edom, to punish their unfaithfulness to him. He was their God. He led them through the wilderness, through the Red Sea. He was their God, and they forsook him. Of all the nations on the earth, they, they, they even made Sodom and Gomorrah look good, Ezekiel 16 says. And so his jealous rage came, and he was indignant for 70 years while they were in Babylon. And now the Lord says, when are you going to have mercy? And he says, well, I'm still exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And so Israel, we have to plead with them to turn to the Lord who struck them. They deserve the striking. That's justice. They don't deserve the love. That's grace. And God gives it to us as a gift. We're going to see. And so the Lord is saying, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I still have a care for them. I'm going to restore them. But this is huge. I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. These nations enjoying this peace and quiet, I am enraged at them. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. It's very important to understand what those words mean. God was only a little angry. We know he was furious with Israel for their apostasy, so that's not what he's saying. They furthered the disaster. And what he's basically saying is, God is angry with the nations who are at ease because although God wanted to discipline Israel, they took it too far. They took it too far. In Isaiah chapter 10, the Lord is speaking to Assyria and he says, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. You see, God's anger, God used Assyria, sinful Assyria to punish Israel. He says, Assyria is the rod of my anger. It's the staff in whose hand is my indignation. But look at this. He pronounces a woe, a judgment against Assyria. You see, just because God uses a sinful nation to punish Israel when they fall away from him, that does, make, does not make God responsible for sin. And it does not make Babylon or Assyria or any of these nations, it will not be a cloak to cover their sin at all on Judgment Day. That's not how it works. Babylon was acting in its own unrighteous ways, following the desires of its own unrighteous, unrighteous hearts, and God used their wicked intentions. He sovereignly orchestrated it without violating their free will. He used their wicked intentions to judge Israel. Just like Judas selling Jesus, okay? Jesus said, go and do what you will. However, God is not responsible just because he is sovereign. A great example of what these nations did to Israel, and once again, many commentators have used this example. Imagine a father disciplining his child. The Lord is disciplining Israel. He's scattering them to the, na the nations. And then a stranger comes in while a father's disciplining his child, spanking him, and he beats him to death with an iron rod. That, that's basically what happens. Isaiah chapter 46, uh, 47, the Lord says, 
I was angry with my people. I, I was angry with Israel. I profaned my heritage and I gave them into your hand, but you did not show mercy to them. And so a lot of the scoffers and different people will look at the Bible and say, well, it's the Lord's fault. He sent out Israel. You know, he really can't blame Assyria. He really can't blame Babylon. No, the Lord is the judge. He is sovereign over all. He was angry with his people. He did use Israel, uh, Assyria to judge them. He did use Babylon to judge them. And I hate saying this, but it's true very recently. It is possible he allowed Hamas to judge them in that horrible terror attack. And yet, at the same time, he is furious with these nations. If the nations who are slaughtering Jews right now had even a drop of divine wisdom as to the fury of the Lord that they will see on Judgment Day, I'm telling you the truth, Hamas would drop every weapon it has. And so the Lord is very angry with the nations who are at ease because he was only a little angry, and they furthered the disaster. So this is something we need to remember here. The angel of the Lord is interceding for Israel. That's why this whole discourse is happening. All these verses are due to the angel of the Lord interceding for Israel. And now the Lord is saying, I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. You see, Israel understood who the angel of the Lord was. This was the angel that led them through the Red Sea. This was the angel who was there when God drowned the Egyptian armies. And literally, it says in 2 Kings chapter 19, the angel of the Lord slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in a single night, all to protect Israel. So this is extremely comforting to the nation of Israel, specifically the remnant of God's chosen people, who were beleaguered, who were oppressed by the nations. They were poor. They were relying on loans just to get the temple done at this time. And so this is this prophecy, they, they would have been grinning from ear to ear. They would have been excited. They would have said, yeah, the Lord's not happy with how these nations have treated us. And he was angry with us, but they made it even worse. They showed us no mercy. And the angel of the Lord, he's coming back. The man on the red horse, he's coming back. Psalm 121 says, behold, he who keeps Israel does not slumber nor sleep. In this first vision, the heart of it is that the angel of the Lord is amongst the myrtle trees of Israel, is amongst the broken, tree, <laughs> the broken people of Israel in the valley who are humbled, and they just came out of this captivity to Babylon. And the angel of the Lord is amongst them. He has not forsaken them. And the man on the red horse, the Messiah, is angry with the ease, the smug arrogance of these nations who persecute Israel. Isaiah chapter 34, the Lord says he has a day of vengeance coming, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. This is why if Hamas had one ounce of spiritual wisdom and just read the Bible, they would cower in fear, not for Israel and not for worrying if America gets involved in the war, because the Lord is coming back and has a day of vengeance Zephaniah chapter 3, the Lord says, wait for me, declares the Lord, for there's a day coming when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation and all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Can you imagine this, my friends? The fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom, that same jealous love that did cause God to judge Israel 
and send them into captivity for 70 years to Babylon and cause them to judge Israel after they killed Christ and the Romans came in, destroyed the temple again. For the last 2,000 years, the nation of Israel has been oppressed. The Jewish people have been persecuted. Hamas recently uh, literally accomplished the worst terror attack since the Holocaust against the Jewish people. But mercy is coming for that nation. But the same jealousy that causes God to punish them for their sin will literally devour the whole world with by fire. The zeal of the Lord to assemble kingdoms who have persecuted Israel. If these nations knew what was coming for them, they would immediately stop terrorizing Israel. But they don't, and they won't until that day. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16 through the first part of 17 now. Therefore... Thus says the Lord, he's saying, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I love Israel. I'm coming back there with compassion. I'm going to be angry with the nations who are at ease. And he says this, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. He's saying, I'm furious with the nations. They're not getting compassion. But Jerusalem, I'm coming back to you and I have compassion. My house will be built in it. The temple will be rebuilt declares the Lord of hosts. A measuring line, a tape measure, will be stretched over Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, even greater than the Solomonic Empire. A greater glory is coming. So just to review this verse really quick, house will be rebuilt. That means the temple, the measuring line stretched out. That means the desolate cities of Israel will be restored one day. And we have a near and far-term fulfillment here, okay? There's a near fulfillment of this prophecy in that the temple Zerubbabel is rebuilding and Zechariah is prophesying and preaching to encourage them to rebuild it and that it, it actually gets completed four years after Zechariah delivers this vision. And then the walls of Jerusalem are, are restored about 70 years later. That's revealed in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. However, Jerusalem has never overflowed with prosperity again. Even today, they're one of the leaders of the free world. They have one of the strongest militaries ever. But it's not like the Solomonic Empire. They were the leader of the world under Solomon. They led all the nations. They were rich beyond imagination. Jerusalem's never overflowed with prosperity again. So this isn't all the Lord is talking about here. The fact that they're back in the land and they did rebuild the temple and the walls were restored was proof God has a plan for Israel. But the full termination of that plan does not happen until the second coming of Christ. In fact, after the first coming of Christ, after they rejected him, the city and the temple were destroyed, just like Daniel and Jesus prophesied. Daniel prophesied the destruction, the Roman siege of Jerusalem and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple 500 years before it happened. And then Jesus echoed that prophecy 35 years before it happened. And then the Romans came in about 35 years after Christ was uh, crucified and they destroyed. So Jerusalem is not in a state of prosperity uh, for the last 2,000 years. And yes, they do have quite a bit of prosperity now, but this verse will find its fulfillment in the millennial kingdom of Christ. Remember that prophecy from Haggai. He's saying, I'm going to shake all the nations. They're going to come with the wealth of the nations. The latter glory, all the wealth is coming, the gold, the silver, the latter glory of the temple, of the house they're building will be greater than the former, Haggai said. Uh, literally what's coming for the temple in Israel will be even greater than Solomon's temple. And so if you just 
take a cursory read through the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that in Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord departed from Ezekiel's temple, and it's never returned since. You see, Jesus did set his foot in this rebuilt temple that Zerubbabel built, but it was not a time of glory or prosperity for Israel. Uh, It was actually a time when Jesus came, it's really a time of national humiliation for Israel because the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Uh, Psalm 118, Jesus repeated this psalm when he was on earth. The Jewish nation, when Jesus came and he did enter Zerubbabel's temple, but that wasn't a time of glory and riches and prosperity for the nation of Israel. They rejected their own Messiah. And so at the second coming of Christ, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 reveals Jesus will rebuild this temple. And then in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, you have a outline and very specific details about the worship and the measurements of the millennial temple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 1,000-year temple where Jesus will reign from Jerusalem atop Mount Zion on the Davidic throne. And in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 5, the Spirit lifts up Ezekiel, and he's in the inner court, and he sees the glory of the Lord filling that house, filling that temple. So it's just important that we get the time frame correct. The glory of the Lord departs Solomon's temple. Babylon comes and destroys that temple. Then Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah, they rebuild the temple, but it's a humble temple. It's a small temple. Jesus sets foot in it, but the Jewish people reject him. The Romans come in and destroy the temple. One day the Antichrist will rebuild the temple and try and prove to everyone that Israel's, you know, prosperous again, and look, I'm Jesus, I'm going to rule the world. Jesus will destroy that temple, and he will rebuild the millennial temple, and for a thousand years reign from Jerusalem, and only at that time will the glory of the Lord come back and fill the house. So I know that's a mouthful, but the timeline is very important. And finally, it says, this is the last statement we'll talk about today, the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. It's so important. We've talked about all these blessings for the nation of Israel today. I mean, salvation spiritually when they look upon Christ, uh, regeneration as a nation, prosperity. They're going to be the head of the nations and not the tails. Uh, There's this river of blessing and all these streams of blessings that are flowing to Israel and Jerusalem and the Jewish people after the tribulation in the millennial kingdom, where's the fountain of this? Where's the fountainhead? Where is the source of this river of blessing? Why has God chosen them? And I think this is so important. Was Israel the best nation? Maybe they were the best. Absolutely not. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. Okay, well, They weren't the greatest nation. Certainly, they were in slavery to Egypt. Maybe Israel was the most moral nation. No. Again and again and again. Exodus chapter 33, the Lord says, you're a stiff-necked people. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, when the Lord leads Israel into the promised land for the first time thousands of years ago, he specifically says, I am not leading you in here because of your righteousness. I am not doing that. And again and again, he says, it is not because of your righteousness righteousness. So the question is, why? Why is God blessing Israel? And this is so important to understand. The foundation of how God deals with his people 
is in his gracious election, choice of them before the foundation of the world to be special recipients of his eternal love. Look at this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord says, do you want to know why I set my love on you? It wasn't because you were the best. Was it, you know, it wasn't because you were greater than all these other nations. You were the fewest. Why did the Lord set his love on you? Verse 80 reveals it. Because the Lord loved you. The Lord loves because he is love. He loves people who are unlovable. He loves nations who hate him. He is love. So he says, the Lord set his love on you because the Lord loved you. And he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, Abraham. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So important. The foundation of how God deals with his children and with the nation of Israel is in his gracious choice, not in them, not unto us, not unto us, but to your name give glory. So this concludes the first of eight visions, okay? This is the end of the first vision, and it's a really good time for us to review everything that we've learned in this first chapter. That way, we can go faster as we get through the other visions. So let's just review very quickly, okay? Zechariah uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, they give us a broad overview of the plan of God to restore Israel. Very general plan. The rest of the book fills in the details. Now, the main themes of this first chapter, Zechariah's name, Yahweh remembers Israel. He is among them regardless of their afflictions. He will judge the nations. He loves them. He cares for them. And he will return to them in compassion. He will establish a millennial kingdom with Jerusalem as the capital city and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, reigning from Jerusalem, okay? Zechariah chapter 14, the last chapter in Zechariah ends with, the Lord will be king over all the earth. But most importantly, most importantly, the first seven verses of Zechariah, this will only happen when the nation repents, These promises and this scripture is not meant to encourage the rebellious. None of God's word is is meant to encourage anybody but God's children. So right now, there's a remnant of Jews in the world who are saved. During Zechariah's time, there was a remnant in Israel that was saved. Those are the people that are encouraged by these scriptures. If there's a soldier in Israel right now, there are many Jewish soldiers in Israel, and they are going to scripture for encouragement. They don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, so they're probably not going to the book of Zechariah and looking at all these promises, because it might be convicting for them, okay? But for God's children, yes, his promises are comforting, right? Those who are born again, those who have repented. And so the nation of Israel will only experience all these promises when they repent. And Zechariah pretty much ends with that happening. Zechariah chapter 12, the Lord pours out his spirit on Jerusalem, and they look on the one they've pierced. They finally look at Jesus. Paul picked this up in Romans in the New Testament. He says, so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. Jesus will come back to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 reveals that. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And so when the nation repents, then and only then will they experience the blessings of God. And that is why we, the church, must call the nation of Israel and everyone to repent, because the only place of blessings with the Lord 
is the place of repentance. And God is not slack concerning all these promises to judge the nations. He's furious with Hamas and Iran and any nation that is oppressing Israel right now. Scripture is clear about that. However, he wants you to reach repentance. He wants people from the nations to reach repentance. And so judgment is coming. Judgment is absolutely certain because it is recorded in the word of God. However, the Lord is patient and he's waiting for people to turn to Christ and he's waiting for Israel to turn to Christ, which scripture reveals when they will. And I just want to conclude with a few tie-ins and messages for the church, okay? When we talk about Israel so much, I know many people in the church think, isn't this for us too? And the answer is absolutely this is for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, speaking of the church in the New Testament, says, you're a chosen race. The church is chosen. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, just like Israel, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You want a job description, right? You want... What is my purpose on earth right now? What am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? Here's your job description. You exist so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, okay? Speaking of Israel and the church, my Haggai series and my Zechariah series, I like to go over this several times just to kind of get it clear in our heads. Jesus said to the Jewish nation, to Israel, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I will bring them also they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The church in Israel are described as two separate branches of one beautiful, glorious olive tree representing the kingdom of God and the children of God who partake of the same root and nourishment and source and life. And the root is the root of David, Jesus Christ. And so when we study these scriptures, we need to understand what Paul said in Romans chapter 15, Whatever, everything written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And here are some similarities between Israel and the church represented in Zechariah chapter 1. Both Israel and the church are in a state of humiliation. We're both in a valley. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. When we're, stra- when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We've become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even till now. First Corinthians 1 says, we're not the wise. We're not exalted in the earth. God has chosen the weak things to shame the powerful and the wise. The church is sharing in the humiliation of Christ right now for the glory of God. We are filling up the measure of Christ's afflictions. Based on God's plan, Christ, the most exalted angel of the Lord, son of God, the one worthy of all honor, he humbled himself to be spit on and mocked for the joy set before him. There is an eternal weight of glory coming for true Israel and the church, but we share that. We are in a state of humiliation right now, and the Lord is jealous for his church, just like he's jealous about Israel. We are here for his glory That is why you are not to take your body and make it a member with a harlot. You are not to watch pornography. You are not to drag Christ into your sin because the Lord is jealous because we are his own possession. Now you say everybody's created by God. That's not what I'm talking about. You're right. Everybody's created by God. Not everybody is God's child. It is amazing that we are God's children. And so yes, 
God rightfully is jealous about us. He cares about us. We are his bride. We are married to God, and he is a jealous God. Israel and the church are both holy nations. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's the song of Moses, and it prophesies so much about Israel's future. And the Lord says, Israel made me jealous with what is not God. They abandoned me. They, they, they gave themselves to idols. They provoked me to anger with idols, this jealous anger. So I'll make them jealous with those who are not a people. I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That's what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're a holy nation. We're a people for God's own possession. The church is a people who one day in heaven cry out to Jesus and say, worthy are you to take the book and to open its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. What did Jesus purchase with his blood? His church, his bride, and that is described as men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So Israel is a chosen nation. The church is a holy, foolish nation that is comprised of people all over the globe from every tribe and tongue and people and nation made into the people of God, gathered into the one flock of Christ. And just as Israel, the fountainhead, the source of all their blessings, was that they were chosen by God, so is the church. That is so clear. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father grants it. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, just as he, uh, the Father, God, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, Romans 9, before you've done anything right or wrong so that the purpose of God's choice, before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8, the book of life of the lamb slain, before the foundation of the world. Do you not understand the awesome mystery of this gospel? Before the foundation of the world, before you did anything right or wrong, God wrote a love circle around your name if you believe in Jesus. And Jesus, thousands of years later, enters his own creation, suffers and dies under the wrath of God, rises from the dead. He did all that so that he could save you. That's based off God's choice of you before the foundation of the world. Free and full grace. Grace is beautiful when we understand it. And we need to understand that the angel of the Lord, he is amidst these myrtle trees of Israel. That's the heart of Zechariah chapter one. God will not forsake Israel, just like the writer of Hebrews told us, the church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Israel and the church share the same root, the same Messiah, the same humiliation, the same eternal destiny, the same gracious election. Israel and the church are so similar. We are not the same, as some people might say. We're not the same branch. We are separate branches, but we are on one glorious olive tree. Finally, in conclusion, the church and Israel look forward to the, to the return, the glorious return of the man riding upon the red horse, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is why we look forward to the man riding upon the red horse coming back, because he is Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1.20, as many are as the promises of God, in him they are yes. In Jesus, all the promises of God are fulfilled. And so all these great things Israel and the church are waiting for, 
Christ fulfills all that. And so, yes, we look forward to the return of the man riding on the red horse. The church and Israel both cry out to God with the same language as the angel of the Lord. Read Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. The saints from under the altar, the martyrs, cry out to God, just like the angel of the Lord. Same exact words. How long? And, and that's our cry today, right? That's the cry of the saints. How long, O God, until he judges the earth? Until he ends the satanic rebellion of the nations? Until he returns to Jerusalem? When are you coming back? Maranatha, Lord, we want you to come back. How long? How long until you reveal your true identity to Israel when they look upon the one whom they've pierced? And finally, how long until you comfort Zion?